This is Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 100, with guest Juan Bennett. This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Hide.me. Protect yourself against hackers and safeguard your identity online with a first-class VPN. Go to Hide.me slash Epicenter and sign up for your free account today. And by Shapeshift. With no account or sign-up required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell gems, counterparty, Dogecoin, Dash, and other living cryptocurrencies. Go to Shapeshift.io to instantly convert your altcoins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. Hi, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And my name is Brian Fabian Crane. Uh, we're here today with Juan Bennett. Uh, he's the inventor of the Interplanetary File System, a project with a nicely modest name. And he's also the founder of Protocol Labs, which is the, the company behind developing it. So IPFS isn't directly a Bitcoin project, but it's a super interesting and ambitious uh, kind of project to decentralize the internet. And uh, before we were just sort of going through topics and Sebastian had this realization where he was like, oh my God, this changes everything. So uh, hopefully we'll get to the same moment in this episode and all of you will have the same drop everything and think like, uh, have a, a change in worldview. So thanks so much, Juan, for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. So um, perhaps let's let's get started with that. So can you tell us a little bit how did you come up with IPFS and how did how did that project get started? Yeah, so um, it all it started very simply. Like I wanted just to make a um, package manager for datasets. Uh, so the goal was to make something that was really fast uh, for moving around scientific data. So this is really big files, things that are you know, hundreds of gigabytes or terabytes um, per data set. Uh, but that was also versioned, right? So it's something that you could improve over time and collaborate on. So something like Git and something like BitTorrent. Um, and in kind of sinking into the, the depths of um, melding these two pieces of technology, um, I came up with a distributed file system, which uh, then came on to be named IPFS. But it didn't strike me until later that uh, it has wide implications for the web as a whole, and that can improve how we move around data uh, throughout the network. And so that's kind of the focus now. So though we started with um, trying to solve like a scientific data set problem, um, we are much more focused now on just improving the web as a whole. Uh, and that's that's the goal of IPFS. So how did you come up, or why did you choose a name, Interplanetary File System? So, uh, so that's funny. So, um, the JCR Licklider, who was uh, one of the people who came up with the ARPANET originally, um, had this idea of creating the intergalactic network. And so when the internet actually stands for intergalactic network. Uh, and so in an homage to that, uh, we decided to name it something along those lines. Um, and so interplanetary file system works really well because 
it also, when you say IPFS, uh, it's the file system for the internet. Uh, and so that's what uh, brought the name together. So tell us exactly what is IPFS and what does it do? So it's a, at its core, it's just a versioned file system, right? So it's a system that um, can take files and manage them and store them somewhere uh, and track versions over time, uh, very much like Git. But it also accounts for how those files move across the network. So it's also a distributed file system. So it um, has rules as to how the content moves around, uh, similar to how BitTorrent uh, has rules around how data in the BitTorrent network moves around. Uh, and this file system layer uh, is enough to build a much better web, uh, a web that gives you very interesting properties like uh, websites that are completely distributed, websites that have no origin server that can run entirely on, on client-side uh, browsers and not have any, any server to talk to. Um, but yeah, it's, it all kind of falls out of just a, a nice system to move around files, kind of like the web falls out of a lot of servers speaking the HTTP protocol and some web browsers running pages. So, I mean, the when when we when we think about IPFS, it seems to me like, I mean, not only HTTP could be replaced by or potentially augmented by it. Have you thought of other other potential protocols that it could? Uh, yeah. So, so um, <laughs> this is tricky, right? Because when you when you make something like IPFS, you suddenly start looking at everything one in one specific way, and you realize that you can like replace it all. Um, this is probably the same kind of thinking that uh, probably Tim Berners-Lee had when he came up with the, uh, HTTP and HTML. He probably just saw all these file systems as, as things that could be globbed up into the web, um, and they have been. Um, and so I think like things that are candidates are just a lot of CDNs, a lot of content distribution networks of different types, um, a lot of different kinds of distributed file systems may not need to be around if this ends up being as good as, as we want it to be. Um, versioning systems, like uh, I think Git is so good that we'll, it'll be around for a long time. Uh, but there are certain kinds of version control that don't exist, uh, that doesn't exist now. You know, versioning on media, for example, like uh, imagine being able to version correctly uh, videos as you make them, uh, or lar large movies and so on. Uh, so those kinds of systems could be augmented or replaced by, by IPFS, depending on how the tooling evolves. But, uh, but I think like the main focus for a while will be on building this new storage layer for the network, like for the entire internet, where uh, the way, the protocol that people use to move large amounts of data changes. And it goes from uh, something that like HTTP, which is um, client server oriented and uh, oriented around recent data uh, in that you always have to sort of re make requests to the server to check if data has changed or um, if you have the latest thing or something, uh, to something where you can reason very carefully about what you already have and sometimes completely avoid having to make any requests at all, which is a really powerful property when you think about uh, the offline use case. So one of the big design decisions for IPFS is to make it off offline first, the same way that Git is offline first, meaning that you can mutate files or, or um, add content to IPFS entirely offline or disconnected from other peers. Uh, and when you rejoin the network, uh, all these changes are synced over time. 
So we, we mentioned HTTP and I mean, we can get into some of the other use cases uh, a bit later on in our discussion, but um, in a lot of your talks and a lot of the writing around each, uh, around uh, IPFS, it, it's often mentioned or alluded to that HTTP is somewhat broken or flawed. Uh, can you explain why you feel that HTTP needs to be uh, replaced or complemented by yeah, IPFS so, or so, um, distributed systems? Yeah, so I think, uh, uh, first of all, um, I, uh, I think much more complemented. I think for a long time, uh, HTTP is a fantastic protocol and it does so much right and it got so much right uh, you know, 25 years ago now um, or so 20, 20 something years ago. Uh, it's a fantastic protocol and it'll continue to do great stuff for the, for the internet um, and we'll continue to use it for a long time the same way that we use today still things like FTP and so on. Um, but there are some issues in how HTTP works that are not scaling um, with our uses of the network uh, and our uses of, of the web in general. Uh, and in particular, uh, actually, I think in terms of how websites are represented or how websites store data on the internet, um, HTTP is actually not a very good system for, for doing this. Um, you would want to be able to have a protocol which allows you to reason about how the data moves, which perhaps has some, um, has, you, you, you want some certain properties and the links that you have between, between computers, things where you're able to check integrity or where you're able to um, have some cryptographic uh, guarantees around things. You, you want to be able to perhaps have signed links and things like that. Um, and just in general, the, the client server, you know, single link model of HTTP uh, doesn't really work when you think about how big the network is today uh, and how you can leverage uh, connectivity between hosts uh, when, on every single request, right? Like when, when you're able to, um, if you're downloading some big file, uh, you don't just want to download it from a specific uh, location. Uh, you want to be able to leverage whoever else has this file in the same way that BitTorrent uh, swarms, for example, uh, achieve this great network performance, uh, you want to have peer-to-peer -peer sharing of the bandwidth load uh, of a downloading a website or something. Um, so in that regard, I think like the, the core problem with HTTP is that it's location addressed. So when you look at a URL, uh, the very first part of a URL, uh, so it's, it's a protocol, but then after that, it's the, the location. So it's the IP address or the domain name which maps to an IP address. And that location identifies a specific set of computers that will serve uh, whatever resource you're requesting, which presents a really big problem if you can't talk to that set of computers, right? If there's some problem in the network between you uh, or the network is slow uh, or you're just completely disconnected, uh, you just cannot access that resource at all. Um, and that resource may have certain properties, like it could be a file that hasn't changed in 10 years and yet you still can't access it. And this problem gets worse when you think about how quickly websites disappear. So there's this um, really short lifespan, lifespan to, uh, to websites. I think uh, some people can give figures around 100 days. I think that's, that might be too intense. Uh, but in general, tons of websites disappear all over, all over the place and they change and move and so on. And so all these links become uh, stale or broken, uh, broken entirely sometimes. Sometimes you can't find data in anywhere um, except on, say, the Internet Archive, who's been, you know, graciously trying to back it up as much as possible because they realized this problem early on 
and they've been trying to like make backups of everything. But you know, there's just a tremendous amount of data, and we can just improve how the network works to um, just make those backups sort of automatic. So, so you talked about that HTTP uses the idea of sort of the location addressing, which you think is flawed, and and what IPFS does is, is content addressing. Can you explain what content addressing is and, and why that's a better approach? Yeah. So, and yeah, let me first say that uh, location addressing makes a lot of sense for certain kinds of use cases. Um, so, so it makes a lot of sense when you want to specifically designate some authority or some some set of computers as as the um, you know source of truth on on what the current state of something it might be. Um, but it is not very good for just large amounts of data or storing data that you may want to access uh, offline. So the, the alternatives, um, one example might be content addressing. And so this is what IPFS uses. Uh, content addressing is the practice of saying, instead of creating an identifier that uh, addresses things by location, we're going to address it with some representation of the content itself, meaning that the content is going to determine the address. This pretty much means you take a file, you hash it cryptographically, so you get a very small representation of the file um, that's you know, secure, uh, so that you can't just come up with some other file that has the same hash. Uh, and you use that as the address. So the address of, of a file in IPFS um, usually starts with a hash that identifies some object, some root object, and then a path walking down. So instead of a server, you're talking to a specific object, and then you are looking at a path within that object. Uh, you're, you're, you're sort of looking at a root of a graph and then walking down its links to find whatever it is that you're looking for. Right. So, so sort of right now, the way it will be, uh, you know, you see a, a link to a file and then basically that points to some location and you go there and it gets whatever's on that location, which may be the same when it was created, maybe something else, who knows, right? Uh, so, but you sort of go out looking at like what is at that location. Whereas with IPFS, it would be, uh, you know, you have this file and you go out and it's like, where is this file? Yeah, exactly. So in in IPFS, you have these addresses, which mean the the content. So you start with the hash and so on, and then you have to solve the problem of of locating it uh, separately, right? So so HTTP has this nice property that because the identifier is a location you know exactly where to go, you talk to those computers, and you get the file. So that's nice, and, and that can be pretty fast. Uh, but it doesn't work in the offline case, right? And it doesn't work in, um, in large distributed scenarios where uh, you want to minimize the round trips, or you want to minimize like, the, the load across the, the network. Um, and certainly, when you have just tons of data, it becomes a pretty big problem to just constantly be making requests. Um, instead, in IPFS, you have this separate, you, you separate the steps. And so the first step is you identify the file with content addressing. And then the second step is you actually go and find it. And so when you have the hash, uh, you ask the network that you're connected to, uh, you basically ask who has this, this uh, content, who has this hash, uh, and then you connect to those peers and download from them. This is basically what DHTs do. Uh, so this is a well well-known um, technique. Uh, this has been around for 15 years. In fact, this is uh, how BitTorrent works nowadays. Uh, nowadays, when you uh, go and um, download a torrent, it usually starts with an info hash, and that info hash is just a, a hash that gives you um, a set of peers in a, in a DHT, and then from them, you download the torrent file, and then you start downloading the, the rest of the file. Um, 
so this is not new. This is actually a pretty old idea. It's been around since 2000 or 2001. Um, but it hasn't been, you know, put as part of the, of the web itself uh, yet. There's been some attempts in the past, but they haven't, um, they, they've been a sort of like different layers. Uh, I think like an, uh, the most notable one, I think, is, is NDN. So this is name data networking. And the idea was to put uh, content addressing directly in the IP layer. So, um, and this was a project started by, by Van Jacobson, who's, uh, you know, famous for, for basically fixing TCP. In the 80s, TCP broke, the internet fell apart. Uh, Van Jacobson came in and said, uh, here's how we fix it. And he came up with the entire field of congestion control um, for TCP and so on. And, and just sort of became an internet hero. Uh, and lately, uh, what in the last, I think, uh, 10, 10 or so years, he's, he had been working on name data networking, which is the idea of putting content addressing at the IP layer. Um, it's really difficult to do because in order to get uh, the entire network to move off of IP to something like NDN, uh, you need massive buying across the world. Uh, I mean, we haven't even switched to IPv6. Uh, I think like switching to something else would be even way less likely. And so we are working at a layer above, which is uh, let's put content addressing at the HTTP layer uh, and move from something like HTTP to something like IPFS, um, which can in fact generate demand for, for NDN. So if, if NDN existed and, and was and gave and we weren't over IP but we were over NDN. Uh, IPFS would be a lot easier to build. Uh, it would be a much much faster thing to to get through. Um, but uh, we basically had to do all this like intense peer to peer work to wrangle this point to point link network into a peer to peer overlay that gives you really fast routing. Um, more on that later, but. Let's take a short break and talk about Hi.me. Hi.me is a VPN provider. And if you don't know yet why you should need a VPN provider, let us help you. I'm sure you were like me and when all the crazy revelations came out during the Snowden time uh, of all the, the spying that is being done by the NSA and other government agencies, you were shocked and you said, not with me, not with my own rights. Now, the way government agencies can spy on you, there's many of them, but the most Easiest way is by simply going to your ISP and getting all your traffic, capturing all your traffic. And the VPN can protect you from that. It can give you a secure tunnel from your computer to any of the exit nodes all over the world so that all your traffic goes to this secure pipe that's encrypted and cannot be intruded on. And with Hike.me, you can choose any of their, their 30 exit nodes all over the world so you can enter the internet in a secure location. The best thing about Hide.me is that they have a free plan. The free plan includes two gigabytes of unthrottled bandwidth on three of the exit nodes that they provide. Now, if you want to get a free plan, you just go to hide.me slash epicenter and sign up there. And if you use that URL, if ever you decide to get a premium plan, you'll get 35% off. Now, the premium plans are really fantastic. They offer unlimited bandwidth, access to all 30 of their exit nodes, and you can use Hide.me on up to five devices, so you can just install the thing on your phone and your tablet and your PC and have the thing running all the time and just be completely protected at all times. And by the way, you can also pay with Bitcoin. So we'd like to thank Hide.me for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. So you, you mentioned before uh, BitTorrent, right, as one of, of the inspiration, and it makes kind of sense that, you know, in, in some cases, HTTP is bad at delivering data and, you know, this can do a much better job. The other thing you mentioned was Git and, 
versioning. Can you explain why is versioning important for files? So versioning gives you the ability to track co uh, how content has changed over time. Um, so there, there's two sides of, to this versioning thing. So one is seeing the history, so being able to have access to how things have changed. And the other is to be able to link to any one of those versions forever, right? So if I, if I see some content out there, like say it's you know, some post by somebody, um, and I want to be able to link to it, or I want to be able to reference it, uh, then I can, I can usually link to it with an HTTP URL, but I'm not guaranteed at all that that content will be there in the future. Uh, I'm not guaranteed that the user that is viewing my post will ever be able to see that post. Uh, and so with IPFS, you get this property of being able to link to specific versions of objects and replicating, replicating them yourself. And so the point is, when I were to quote your, your post, for example, I would create a link directly to it, and then whoever viewed my post would also view that version of your post as well. Uh, they could, there's ways of letting them be able to see the newer versions of your post, say if you updated it or something. Um, but the important piece is that the content that I reference doesn't disappear, uh, that I can have some way of ensuring that that content doesn't go away. So, so that means, for example, let's say you had a blog and you're linking to different people and you say like, oh, I, I want to be sure that when people come back to my blog three years down the line and I have all these links in there that those pages still exist, then with something like IPFS, I could just host those myself. Uh, and Yeah, exactly. So you help replicate that content, right? So um, when you link to stuff, uh, you are... Uh, adding them as sort of, in a sense, dependencies to your content. And so um, when you back up your content and all of its dependencies, then you would be backing up some of those sites as well. I mean, of course, you could potentially today take someone else's site and just copy it, and but that wouldn't work so well, I guess, because the location would be different then, right? It wouldn't be... So, so the location will be different and, you know, we would also have to trust you and trust that you were really linking to the, to the correct thing. Um, it's like, really hard to do. Like you would have to go and like take their site and like try to do this um, of like copying all the stuff and hosting it somewhere and trying to like create this mirror. Uh, and in effect, like this is actually what the Internet Archive does, right? So the Internet Archive is trying to do this for the entire web all the time. And it, it works reasonably well in that they're able to create these backups of websites. But it doesn't work so well for dynamic websites, things that are, um, you know, by nature, like just have pages that are constantly changing um, and so on. Or like, you know, social networks where uh, that are closed and the archive can't crawl or, or something. Um, and so with IPFS, you could put all of these posts as first class objects in the graph itself. So the thing about IPFS is that it doesn't, it's not just about files. It's a, it's a layer below that. Um, it just gives you this graph of objects that you can link together. So think of all of your data as being able to ride on this, on this transport uh, and be able to be linked the same way so that you could have like a user object, for example, as an IPFS object that can link to other user objects or that can link to posts and so on. And so a post can link to another post that I referenced or something. And by backing up that post, you back up everything else. So this is the aha moment that I had earlier where I was imagining, because um, I've, I've, I've been playing with IPSFs for the last couple of days and, and trying to think about ways that you could perhaps like host websites on IPFS. You know, they would have to be client side, but with technologies like Meteor, you could conceivably do stuff like that. And then you could have like a, 
a NoSQL database that would be sort of a JSON structure. And in that structure, you would simply reference other objects like user objects or products, for example, if you were hosting a, an e-commerce site or, and those objects would have all the properties that you mentioned, like versioning and et cetera. And, but then I guess the, the flip side of that is, is those objects, if some of those objects become uh, un, unnecessary or needed, you know, they could conceivably stop being served if the nodes in the network stops stop uh, serving yeah, the files. So, so um, in general, think of, of this a little bit like Git, where once you have old history, it kind of tends to stick around. Like, yes, there are cases where you go and like garbage collect old stuff, but in practice, you rarely do that because the content is so small. Like in, in practice, the, the, the really important data is usually really small, meaning that uh, databases and, um, you know, like, yeah, like content in databases or the content in like important uh, files and documents and so on is usually very, very small uh, compared to say like big movies and big media. Um, so because the data tends to be smaller on, on average, I mean, like there are, of course, like these massive data warehouses and so on, but um, because that, those pieces of data tend to be smaller, you don't have a problem just accumulating it over time. And in, in general, most people want to keep as much data as possible because it gives you more information about the past and it gives you more information about um, your decisions in the future. Uh, being able to uh, look at the past allows you to make better decisions about the future. Um, so kind of like a Git repository, you would just keep things around uh, in, for the most part. Like th think also about the books, right? Like you don't, if a book references some old book, uh, there, there probably isn't a time that's going to come when you say, you know what, we don't need the old book, let's, let's just burn them all, right? We, we've kind of like figured it all out. Uh, you still want to keep everything around. Um, and so IPFS gives you the ability to, to just do that for lots of data that uh, isn't very large in general. Um, and it gives you a very simple way of reasoning about how those old versions are going to stick around and how you can reference them and how you can find them and, and so on. Um, the same way that Git works. So I'd like you to walk us through, I mean, let's not spend too much time on this because we have so much more to talk about, but walk us through what happens when, when you install IPFS, when you add a file or a set of files uh, to the network and, and then they start propagating. Can you sort of explain what happens? And like end-to-end. -end. Yeah, end-to-end. -end. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's great. So it's, it's large and it's, um, it sounds complicated, but when you think about just how complex moving a packet from one side of the network to another, like it's not actually that big of a deal. Um, in that, for example, like HTTP is actually pretty complicated when you, when you look into it, or even IP is really complicated when you look deeply into it. Um, so in IPFS, uh, so today, uh, the way the distribution wor uh, works right now is that you download this client and you, and you run it in your local machine. That's not going to be the case in the future. Like what we're targeting is um, for IPFS to, be, to have implementations on the browser. So we're talking about native support for IPFS in you know, Chrome and Firefox and all the, all the major browsers. Um, and the, the way we're going to get to that, uh, you know, we have like this several step approach. Uh, one step is to uh, make a JavaScript implementation so that you can just run IPFS entirely in a tab. Um, another is to have like extensions because the tab is it's going to be really good with like no friction. People are going to be able to use IPFS with, without installing anything at all. Uh, but it'll be a little bit slower than if you had it installed in your browser. And so for the browser, we'll have an extension. So if some users that want to do that can 
run an extension. Um, and then over time, we want to just prove out to the browsers and say, like, look, this is what it would look like to have IPFS just natively in your browser, and then submit patches to them to get it adopted. And like, that's, that's the goal, like to, to make it completely transparent and seamless so that nobody has to install anything at all. Um, so today, uh, in order to, to like, you know, get there to some point, we have a distribution that, that works through um, a local binary that you install and you run locally. Um, and so once, you, once you're running IPFS uh, and you, you just run one command, which is adding a file. And so that could either be from the command line. So you can just say IPFS add some file or some directory. Or you, you, if you use the web UI, which there is one, uh, you can just drag and drop. And so you can just like, drag a file from your computer and drop it on, on IPFS, uh, and then it gets sort of added to your, to your local node. IPFS doesn't actually move the content all over the place. Like it, nobody downloads anything unless they specifically request it. There's, this is a, a set of hard constraints. Um, I'll describe more why later, but just uh, for now, like just assume that that's the case. Uh, once the content is in your node, the, uh, your node is now going to, well, first of all, it chunks the content. So if it's if you're throwing in a large file, it, as it imports it, it, it splits it up into a whole bunch of little pieces and creates a graph out of it. So uh, a graph that allows seeking. So being able to have a really fast index um, so that, if, for example, if you want to access like the middle of the file, you don't have to go through like a really, you know, um, you don't have to seek from the beginning and so on. This is like basics uh, of file systems. Once you have that graph, you have a set of objects uh, that are all these nodes um, in the graph, and you want to tell the world about them. Uh, and so this is the, what we describe as the routing layer of IPFS. So it's the content routing. Uh, when you add content to IPFS, you start advertising what content you have. And this is, of course, configurable. Like there are, there are certain content that you might want to add that you don't want to advertise. And that's a policy that can be set. How that gets set and so on is a little bit complicated right now. Uh, but in the future, it'll be like pretty seamless. Um, but you know, the content that you want to distribute gets advertised to the rest of the network. And these advertisements, all it is is just you're kind of like telling the rest of the network, hey, I've got file with, with a certain hash. Um, if another node somewhere else in the network now wants to request that file, uh, what they do is like they try to get that content. And so they ask the rest of the network um, who has that, uh, that content. And amongst one of the, the responses, it'll be your node. And so they'll connect directly to you and download the content from you. And so they'll download it object by object. And so they might actually just want a piece of it. So for example, if um, suppose that this is um, you know, some like large data set or like, you know, some large file, like a huge document or a movie or something, and they're only seeking like from the middle, middle on, uh, they don't have to get the first part of the file, they can just like, request the object that they need to just get to the middle and just start from there, which makes seeking really fast uh, and gives you like this really, really good experience uh, on browsing for video and so on. And uh, then they start getting that content, right? But as soon as they start downloading it, as more people start requesting that file, uh, there are now, say, two, three, and so on uh, nodes that can distribute this content. This is basically kind of how uh, BitTorrent and other networks work. Um, but that's usually just kind of like this separate system that is not integrated with the web. And so we're just making it integrated entirely with the web. Uh, so I think like, yeah, so you add content, it gets added to your local node, it then gets advertised to the network, and then somebody else in the network can request it, and then they, they pull it in, um, and they have it. 
uh, along all these steps, by the way, there's there's hooks for logic to be added, which is, I think, a very important distinction between IPFS and other systems. Um, we're giving you the ability to to set up policies around how content gets advertised, to whom it gets advertised, over what network. Um, and even if you receive requests for certain objects, you're able to decide whether or not you serve it to those, to those peers. You may have certain constraints and you say, well, yes, I have this content and I want to serve it, but I only want to serve it to specific sets of, of individuals or individuals that carry a, um, that carry a, uh, a token. So a token, like an authentication token or something. So this is how you do security today in, in HTTP web. And it's the same thing in, in, in IPFS. So you would be able to give people the ability to just download um, secure stuff, like being able to, to know exactly who's downloading things. Today's magic word is storage, S-T-O-R-A-G-E. Head over to letstalkbitcoin.com to sign in, enter the magic word, and claim your part of the listener reward. So... I, when I was reading about IPFS, I, I came across a blog post by a guy from Neo Cities, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. And I've, perhaps that would be a good thing to talk about, also to give a little bit of a more, you know, a concrete project that's actually using IPFS. Can you can you talk about what they do? Yeah. So uh, yeah, this was uh, Kyle Drake. Uh, Kyle Drake is the founder of um, Neo Cities, and he's uh, really, really awesome guy. So he sort of found us on the on the internet and found IPFS and uh, understood the implications and was like, "Wow, this is this is huge!" Uh, and he just kind of like jumped on on, um, on the IRC channel and just started uh, hacking away at a bunch of like different things around it. Uh, super uh, awesome guy, by the way. Uh, so he so he made New Cities to be this website that. Um, He's trying to sort of bring back creativity into the web, and so he sees the disappearance of GeoCities, like the old Yahoo GeoCities website, um, as this huge moment of kind of destruction on the web. When uh, this site that used to host tons of websites and tons of valuable, um, important creative moments for people just kind of all went away, and a, and a lot of crap too. I got to say, yeah, I, I made a lot of that crap on GeoCities at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a uh, for sure. But uh, you know, you never know. Like some of that stuff could actually be valuable in the future. Like you don't know what um, silly little uh, experiments from random people it act are actually interesting to look at or interesting to 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 read about. So like, GeoCities is like this this website that sort of disappeared, um, and sort of create destroyed kind of the uh, creativity. And and one of the points here is that uh, it's difficult to uh, get started with programming nowadays. Uh, when you think about how most people started programming it in our generation, maybe not in the older generations, but in our generation, it's usually with the web, right? Like people started learning how to how to program websites and how to do HTML and how to like add a little bit of JavaScript and a little bit of CSS and so on. And over time, uh, they had this like really fast iteration cycle of being able to just add a little bit of code to get a result. And GeoCities made that really easy. And and Kyle's point is, with that gone, we don't really have a whole bunch of other outlets that are that easy and that simple to get started with. Uh, so he wanted to reboot that and say, like, let's create this again. Um, let's try and, and um, build a, a better version of, of that idea and bring back creativity to the web. And his goal is to make something that's kind of permanent, right? That, that um, people can't necessarily um, just 
sort of like shut down automatically and that like uh, he doesn't want a company that will be like um, bought and shut down like GeoCities was um, or a, a set of websites that just at some point the company will just say, hey, sorry users, we know that you're using this, but we're just going to shut it down on you anyway. Um, he wants to give control to the users entirely and say like, look, this is your thing. Uh, we just make it easy for you, um, but you have the, the complete control. And so IPFS actually gives NeoCities a really good way to do that. Um, because normally um, with the regular web, you have to host servers. And when people are hosting things in your infrastructure, they're, you have all their content and you are hosting it for them. And you're their intermediary. And at any point, you can just sort of like shut down and disappear. And it's very difficult for people to back all that content up and set up their own website somewhere else and so on. But with IPFS, all of those websites are just these objects that are shared. And so uh, NeoCities becomes um, a website focused entirely around the making it easy for people to get started and making it easy for people to create on the web. But all of the content is stored in IPFS, which means that anybody can back it up and continue creating and continue generating. Um, and so he sort of makes it a... a, a, a a thing where where users have complete control uh, and have the ability to just own their data and decide when it gets shown and um, you know when it gets taken out or whatever. But but so I get that that they they have the data on IPFS as well or only as well I presume right. So right now it's as well. So they have their uh, so the the implementation will follow a set of steps. So like so for now. Uh, it's as well. So you have all of the sites are um, on, uh, they're served by the HTTP servers in, in your cities, the same way that we have our IPFS gateways that serve HTTP to, to people. Um, and you can request all of that content also with IPFS. So, so if you're using the IPFS protocol natively, then you can request all of that content as well. So it's both in, in HTTP and in an IPFS. Um, and what, where it's going to get interesting is when uh, when we get naming to be really robust. Uh, so that's when you can give people keys. So New City has this plan of of giving people keys uh, to a certain uh, name, and the keys can be generated by them if they want to do that. Um, and they can just give the updates to New City. And New City doesn't have to ever own the keys or anything at all. They just kind of like mirror your content for you and make it easy for you to get started. And so in the case, let's say NeoCities disappeared, then somebody else, at least in that intermediary time where, let's say, I, my browser doesn't know what to do with IPFS, someone else would have to go in there and do that sort of resolving that, you know, if you make a request, then they look up in IPFS. Uh, yeah, so we have this, this bootstrapping problem, uh, which is that the majority of the, of the network does not speak IPFS, so how do you get them? Uh, to use IPFS content. And the way we solved it is that we have, uh, along with the standard distribution of IPFS, you get this HTTP server, which takes every request it gets and resolves it through IPFS. So, so we call this a gateway. And so it's an HTTP to IPFS gateway. So you make HTTP requests, and so standard browsers can look at it um, and can link to it and so on. Uh, but the whole content actually gets resolved through IPFS. Um, and we run a set of gateways. Uh, so we, we run this like network of servers that um, are the, the so the ipfs.io domain uh, is our gateway. 
and every link that people go to and that website is hosted entirely on IPFS. So anything inside IPFS.io is hitting, uh, is, is being served with IPFS behind HTTP. Uh, so you may, your browser might make an HTTP request and that at that server, it gets turned into an IPFS request and then it gets served. So there, there, there are multiple gateways of which IPFS.io is one of them. But so this is, uh, so I was talking about websites earlier um, and I'm, I'm, I sort of experimented. I was building a website, a static website, and I, I uploaded it to, uh, to IPFS and, and, and I was able to, to access it through a gateway. And then I started thinking, okay, well, how can I uh, route a domain name to this, uh, to this, uh, to this address? Uh, and one way of doing that would be to just on like my hosting server have a, a static page that redirects there that does the URL cloaking, but I still have to rely on that uh, hosting provider. That's sort of sort of a central point of failure, you know, if if you're looking to eliminate those. Um, in in the future, can we imagine that you can straight up set like DNS uh, your your DNS settings to point to uh, to an IPFS um, uh, object. Yes. So that's not the future. That's today. You can do that entirely today. Uh, we call okay. this, we Please call this, uh, <laughs> DNS link. Uh, so we, not only are we going to make the IPFS web, but we're also going to make the DNS web. Uh, the DNS web is just, uh, you take a text record and you set a value called, uh, and you prefix it with DNS link equals, and then some, some link. And that link is not just an IPFS hash. We, we made the point that, Hey, this should be for other protocols as well. Um, and so you say DNS link equals, and you say, you know, some path and that path could be on IPFS. It could be on HTTP. It could be anywhere else. Right. And so, uh, whoever's resolving this text record, um, can take that domain name and the value of that domain name and then, um, put it on the, on the browser. Right. And so we have this working today with two things. One is our gateways do this automatically. So if you go to IPFS.io slash IPNS slash IPFS.io again, what that will do is it will request the DNS text record for the domain IPFS.io. It will realize that there's some hash associated with that and then we'll fetch the IPFS content that will serve it. So your URL will look beautiful. Like it will have no, no um, hashes on it and in it at all. Right, but that you're still relying on a gateway to do that. What I'm right. one of, so, so, so that's, like to get that's to. on the. So, so that, I guess the next step is being able to set a DNS record in your DNS zone with your hosting provider and saying this DN this this domain name points to not an IP an IP address but points to an IPFS object or an IPNS object and perhaps we can explain what IPNS is uh, briefly. But so, so what I mean is that the records work exactly how they will in the future already. What doesn't work yet is the resolution because the user's browser doesn't know what to do with it. Right, like the user's browser still needs. Um, a bootstrap step of being able to uh, talk to the IPFS network. And so we can solve that in multiple ways. So uh, one way is with the gateways, that's like that zero uh, running IPFS locally at all. Uh, the next step is you, you solve it by, so the our gateways will transition to doing this in the future, but um, when they detect that you're viewing it through a regular web browser um, and you don't have a special header set or something, it will serve you some JavaScript that will be the IPFS uh, client in JavaScript, uh, like an, an IPFS node in JavaScript. You will run that, and then you'll be able to resolve the DNS record yourself. Um, so we can do this without any any changes to 
DNS, we can do this now with just the, what we have. You, you can do it with what you have. We just need to ship our JavaScript implementation and then, then you'll get a zero install uh, thing. You can do it also today if you want to install something. If you install your a local client, then you can do it locally. Um, and okay. if you install a um, the browser extension, for example, you can do it locally. So we're sort of reliant on uh, browser extensions and down the road, eventually, this is what's what's desirable is for browsers to support IPFS. And then once that is in place, then we can have purely like DNS resolving to IPFS objects. Yeah, well, you'll have the DNS resolving um, in, yeah, so, so JavaScript doesn't allow us to do text record resolving um, yet. So yeah, we'll, we'll still need to get um, either some code changes in the browser or rely on an extension to get the full uh, DNS resolution. But you can actually, um, if you sign your records with, uh, you, you can actually use some other resolver for for you, right? So you can still get all of this in JavaScript, meaning that you can get what, what you're describing will be a re reality in like before the year ends, like in 2015. That's that's very cool. And so just so we mentioned IPNS, I think it's important to to uh, just point out that IPNS is a component of, of IPFS, which, which allows you to have uh, a hash which is mutable, which will not change over time, and which will continue to link to an object that can be changing. So, for instance, you could have a website that you know you keep updating, and with this unique hash uh, that uh, remains the same, you will always point to that same object. Yeah, so the, the idea is that um, IPNS gives IPFS mutability. So a regular IPFS path is, is immutable by design. The, the idea is that you have these objects that, are, that can't change, uh, and that gives you all these re really nice distributed system properties where you can reason about the content, you can view it offline, and all that stuff. Um, but you still need some mutability because you want to be able to give people identifiers that don't change, right? That gives, allows them to uh, view the latest version of something. And the way we make that happen, um, and, and by the way, this, this looks a lot like what Git does, right? So Git internally uh, is a huge uh, set of objects that are all immutable, and then it has these mutable uh, pointers on top that we call branches, right? So Git branch is really just a file that is, has a very nice name, but has a big um, immutable hash, or like, or like the hash of an immutable object inside of it. Uh, and so IPNS works the same way, Except that the names in IPNS are, instead of being like these nice readable things, um, they're the hashes of public keys. And what that means is that I can claim, instead of having like this, this naming authority problem, right? Like the DNS has this issue where you, you need to register a domain name and you have to pay people money to get a, a name. Um, and the same thing happens with Namecoin or any of the other name resolver systems. Uh, you have to go through some consensus process to reserve a name. Instead, what we can do is, is uh, generate keys. We can, you generate a private key, and the hash of the public key is the name. Uh, and you know, it's not a pretty name. There's a way of, of binding a pretty name to, to an ugly name. Um, but what you use these ugly names for is that it, it allows you to give people updates on that name um, by just signing a record. So what this means is that if, if I have a version of an object, right, A, and I want to up, update that to say version B, um, I move the pointer to now point to the next version. And what I do is I craft a new record saying, oh, the, this name now points to uh, B. 
and I put that in, into the network, into the, the routing system of the network. There, there's a lot of complexity into how all of that happens uh, in terms of, uh, you know, there's a lot of guarantees around there, like who can get to sensor records, who can get to, um, like what kind of attacks might exist, how do you ensure that the records reach everyone and all that kind of stuff. Um, and for that, you know, uh, we can give people links and so on. Um, but the point is, uh, this has been solved uh, for a long time. Like people have come up with really good ways of doing this. Uh, and we're employing them, and we're saying, great, like this is this is the way you do mutable records in um, in a large distributed system, and let's use that to um, move these pointers over time and give people the ability to get all these mutable names. Okay, so we have this uh, this technology which allows us then to have websites that are uh, not hosted on any server that can live forever, uh, where you can even also have DNS pointing to them. Uh, but the one limiting factor is that these are static uh, files. So, for instance, you could store, you could, you could, you could host uh, an HTML website, and then, you know, going one step further, you now, you know, we now have pretty advanced uh, JavaScript technologies, which allows us to have single-page apps like Meteor or whatever. Um, but you know, server-side scripting language would still be sort of an issue. Now, can we imagine some sort of layer on top of IPFS where we could have some um, more advanced server-side scripting, I mean, equivalent of server-side scripting, like PHP or something like that? So, so when you think about um, the web today, what you have is you have a little bit of, of computation spread around and you have a lot of storage, right? So uh, servers do a little bit of work and they have to do it at the server-side because they're kind of trusted. Um, the client does a little bit of work and that's kind of trusted for the user's context. Uh, and then usually you just have a lot of data in the server side because they're backing up everything. And you have a little bit of data in the client side because they're just viewing some subset of the, of the stuff, right? When you move to the world of IPFS though, you kind of like unravel these distinctions and you treat the client and the servers just nodes. And so the client can make some operations and the server can make some operations, like just do their computation as usual. And the content that they produce is just IPFS objects. Um, so though all the content is static, you can think of, of that as just a transport of data. So the same way that you would say, perhaps have like a, a REST API that gives you some object, instead they could just return the reference to an IPFS object. They could just return the hash or they could just return the actual object themselves. Um, and that gives you the same equivalent of, um, of the computation we have today, but in, in, in an IPFS world. Uh, you still have to reason about who does what computation because you have certain kinds of trust um, implicit in, in the logic, right? So you don't want, like if you have an, a, a, a sales system that uh, has to make sure that accounts are properly managed and so on, you don't want to give the user access over that because they will cheat. Um, and so instead you, you put that in a trusted environment. Now, a really nice replacement for all of this is smart contracts, right? This is where where when you think about how smart, smart contracts might work, uh, you can create a whole bunch of really sophisticated uh, programs that run entirely in the network and are auditable uh, by the network. So you can have whole systems that are totally open and, and you can view the source code of all of them and still run them in kind of a trusted environment because you can check that, that the properties are, are holding, right? That the, there's no double spends, that uh, the protocol was followed correctly and so on. And all the content that they create is just they're mutating pieces of data, all of which can just be more IPFS objects. 
as we were talking about before, uh, you could have these posts, uh, you know, like user accounts and posts and so on, but just as well you might have um, shipping orders and, you know, like um, boards of stuff or like, you know, forums and something, um, all these kinds of websites that are, that are all dynamic. Um, you can make all of them be just IPFS objects. And so the program would just mutate the data structure and just put the data structure back into the network, uh, which gives you a really nice separation between the, the viewers, which are just UI, on top of the data. Um, it's kind of a way of like just ripping open the, the big databases that people are creating and just dumping them straight into the web. So right now you have this like construction where the, the browser talks to the server over like a wire and um, you know, like a, an HTTP connection. And on the other side, the server is like writing stuff to a huge database, but you don't really have access to the database. Uh, however, many times that database doesn't really matter. Like you, you don't, so in some cases you do care about privacy and in some cases you don't. And so for the cases that you don't, you can just like rip it open completely. And for the cases where you do care about privacy, uh, in reality, what you want is a much more secure model of privacy than what we have today. Because what we have today is just that it's kind of security by obscurity because you just have to be on the, on the uh, server side to be able to look at everything. And what you would instead want is something with capabilities where um, the user could entirely encrypt all of their own data end to end. And so encrypt things locally and ship to the servers or, or you know, the other nodes uh, totally encrypted pieces of data that they can't read because they don't have the keys. Um, and so only other nodes that have the relevant keys could decrypt it and read it, and only specific nodes that have the update uh, capabilities could like write back. Um, there's a lot of great research done on capabilities uh, and a few really good implementations. I think like notably, uh, Taho LAFS is like I think a fantastic implementation of all the, um, all the capability stuff. And uh, that's that alongside with eWrites, which is another great project for um, kind of thinking about how capabilities work and they might work in distributed systems and so on. Um, but the point is like, it's a, it's a very, it's a different model, uh, it's a different security model than what we have today, but it's way, way better for the user because uh, you get to encrypt things end to end, you get to decide who looks at what files, who gets to update what files and so on. Our show today is brought to you by our friends at Shapeshift.io. Shapeshift is the fast and easy way to trade altcoins, and they now support over 50 cryptocurrencies, which includes all the ones you have ever heard of, unless you have no life and spend way too much time on Bitcoin talk. So if you want to trade altcoins, there's the old way of doing it, which means creating an account somewhere, giving them all your data, depositing your money, and then growing old while hoping for the best. Or there's a shapeshift way, which is fast, easy, and means getting it all done in less than a minute while not even needing an account. So here's something to consider. Shapeshift is a company that really stands by its values and goes out of its way to protect its users' privacy. One way to do that, obviously, is by not requiring you to create an account to use their service so they don't track any of their users' information. And secondly, when BitLicense was enacted in the U.S., uh, they were the first Bitcoin company to say, screw this, we're not going to stand up for this nonsense. And so what they immediately did was move the company out of the States and into Switzerland. So Shapeshift is a company that really stands by the ideals of Bitcoin, and we think that's really cool. And plus, by sponsoring shows like ours, they really help entertain people like you and also promote growth in the industry. So we'd like to thank Shapeshift for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin.
So yeah, you mentioned uh, the smart contracts topic, which which I find particularly important, uh, interesting, because you know I work with Eris now, and you know one of the f the first things they did was to build this sort of distributed YouTube based on IPFS, and IPFS is sort of a quite central component of it. And I was I was thinking about before, you know, where where is the synergies between IPFS and smart contracts? And there's a few things that that sort of come to my mind and and. So, you know, in, in a smart contract, right? So you, you'll have some code that basically describes the sort of the pro, a protocol of interaction for, for some parties, right? So, of course, one of the things you probably want to do is, is reference some files, right? So how would you do that now? Well, it's, it's not really clear, right? I mean, of course, you could put a link in there, but then... So, so you, then have you a, depend on the other side, right? Yeah. So, so what you do is you you um, you put an IPFS link there, and um, we the IPFS link just looks like you know slash IPFS slash and a big hash, and then a path. Um, but right now, because we're not in, you know, it's not the case yet that everybody is running IPFS locally. Uh, so what you do is just uh, you add a protocol So we'll have a protocol identifier that allows people to, like when they click on it, um, either resolve it with um, by installing IPFS or resolve it by, by going to the gateway. So, so you, right. you, can, you can use links today uh, and people can view them. It's just they have to be well-formed. And I think right now there's a little bit of confusion about that. People aren't, um, people aren't uh, following kind of like the guidelines. So we, we, we need to do a better job at like expressing how, how this, is, this should be done. Right, but I think the the nice thing as well is that you you sort of combine the 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 content addressing and the location of the file, right? Because you want to have in a in this sort of future smart contract environment, right? You want to have the security, so you want to be sure that 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 file is actually the thing you're referencing. So if you can then look it up the same way, you know that's that's great. And then the other thing is who hosts the file, right? So that's a, this sort of another security. Thing. And in a distributed application, well, if, if, if your distributed application depends on some central server hosting the file, well, then, you know, how distributed is it really and how secure is it really? But of course, if you have something like IPFS and then it's just any party that's involved in this contract, any, anyone who cares about these files and says like, okay, I, I need this thing to be available, can just host it themselves. And, and make sure that it will always be available. And, and that's super powerful, right? So I think, I think that's like a good example where, I mean, you could probably do it without IPFS, but it's so much nicer if you have IPFS. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and on the, um, on the how do you get it to be hosted? So yes, uh, the parties that are interested in those, that those files can keep them around uh, and we'll have a set of tools around helping it uh, making it really easy for groups of people to just back up large amounts of data. Uh, there's already, for example, these efforts that we have of backing up huge uh, caches of important knowledge. So we, we're taking like all these uh, open science uh, archives, like tons of papers and tons of like, um, you know, Creative Commons media and so on, and just backing them on IPFS, um, like just backing up all this stuff. Uh, because you know, helping to archive all this data in case it like disappears for for whatever reason, um, and so we will have some tools. But the but the real solution is uh, what we so a sister project to IPFS, which we have, which is called Filecoin, uh, and that's a way where you can get 
you can incentivize the entire network to help you back up stuff. Um, the, the, so when I said earlier that uh, I would come back to like describe like the, the strict, uh, you know, the, the design constraints around IPFS and why it doesn't, you know, kind of like force other nodes to, to store content, um, this is it. So people would not install something like IPFS if it meant that they might be downloading stuff that they didn't explicitly request. And that, um, you know, if, if, if to view certain files, they had to like download other stuff that they didn't want to download and store it, um, they might do it, but the, the big reason they won't is that a lot of people would just start storing illegal stuff and people just don't want to store that. Even if you encrypt it, people would still not want to do that. Uh, this is certainly true about companies, right? So, so large companies would never want to um, use something that would just start downloading all this encrypted stuff, of which some of it might be really bad illegal stuff. Um, so IPFS strictly has as a design constraint that you never download anything that you don't explicitly request. Um, and that's like the default operation. Like you do not download things unless you explicitly request them. Um, at the same time, you do want to be able to build a certain network that some nodes can say, hey, we, want, we, we have a lot of disk space. We can offer to backup stuff for everybody, uh, but we want something in return. And so the idea, the idea there is that um, a certain set of people will set up disks and trade those for for money, right? And so the, the, you have this, this situation where um, in order for, for disks to keep connected in the network, people have to keep putting in value, right? Like there's, there's this constant value expenditure that people have to, have to have. It's similar to hashing in a way, right? Like people are expending a resource. Uh, so in the Bitcoin network, um, people are constantly expending uh, electricity and uh, to power these machines, hashing constantly um, to power the Bitcoin network. Uh, so similarly, you have a situation in, in storage where people have to constantly be, be dumping money into keeping bandwidth lines open and electricity for running disks and, you know, swapping out bad disks and all this kind of stuff, like this constant expenditure of value um, to keep data around. And though that, of course, is getting cheaper over time, it's not zero. It's not a zero cost. And because it's not a zero cost, you need to um, remunerate that with value in some way. And so that's where the idea for Filecoin came out, right, of saying, look, um, we'll have two protocols, one protocol, which is IPFS and helps everybody think about where the data is located and move it around. And another protocol, which is Filecoin, which allows people to dis to get together in a network, uh, and then trade disk space for, for cryptocurrency. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's an obvious, an obvious need, right? Because otherwise, how are you going to have people actually save stuff? Can you talk a little bit more about how Filecoin works? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Filecoin is very much based on Bitcoin and it's a, a the difference comes in the proof of work uh, system. So instead of having, um, so the, there's, there's a layer, an additional layer there, which includes a proof of retrievability. This is a cryptographic construction where um, a certain node has to prove they're holding a specific file locally. Uh, and you can organize that proving process to build a, um, a network with lots of nodes that are competing to prove that they have certain uh, files at the right time um, and organize them such that like, you have this network that keeps growing with a large data set that keeps growing, meaning like data that people are requesting uh, from the system um, or requesting the system back up for them. 
uh, and asset gross, uh, people, miners that are coming into the system with disk space uh, can earn Filecoin as a currency for backing up that data. Um, and so like the, the, what it looks like to, to users is that they, there's a spectrum, right? They can be on either end. So they can just be users and just uh, kind of hire the Filecoin network to store data for them. And so they would either, uh, they would buy Filecoin from the network by exchanging it for Bitcoin or something, um, and then spend it uh, to, on the network to hire it to back up data. And once they add this data, other nodes on the other side of the spectrum would back up this data and over time prove that they have it uh, and serve it out to earn that Filecoin uh, or to earn Filecoin along the, along the way. Uh, and so that allows users to be anywhere in the spectrum, right? You can be on one end and just be a user. You can be on the other end and, and be uh, just a, a miner that's storing data um, for other people and making money. Or you can, be, you can hover in the middle and just kind of come out even. Just store enough data that you um, get enough Filecoin to back up your data. And so you can be pretty much anywhere you want. So how does that work from a sort of monetary perspective? Um, do you have some sort of issuance that, I don't know, it's like deflationary or inflationary or? Right. So like you, you don't want, um, yeah, so, so the, you'll have a system where you want it to be pretty cheap to be able to use the network. Uh, you want it to be pretty cheap to, uh, so like the units, like when, when you get down to like the least divisible unit, you don't want the unit to be too large to be able to like use the network. Of course, there's like side protocols that you can make and to like, you know, split even further, but like you don't want to do that. Um, so you want, you, you want the, the, the price of like the, the smallest possible unit to be low enough that the people like, uh, for a while um, can use it. But, but what you ideally want is the value of Filecoin to track, um, to, to, to have a floor and that floor being the value of the whole network meaning that the network together um, running the service of storing files for everybody will have a certain value uh, that, that will include the actual physical value of you know, getting the disks and storing the data for people and the value of like organizing this whole network uh, to happen. Uh, and you want that to be sort of the floor. And you can get it to be like, cheap enough. Um, and you, it's the same thing with Bitcoin, right? So when you think about Bitcoin, you have this massive network with lots of people mining um, and, and sort of like the floor of the currency is, uh, it's, a, it's a very low floor that we're like, we're orders of magnitude above that floor, but the floor is as a payment processing system or as a transaction system, um, Bitcoin is a valuable thing to have uh, to be able to process these transactions. Um, and so that lends some value to the network. And so, that, so, so in a sense, there's like that at the very least. Um, so does that, that sort of make sense? Or? Um, yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just curious. So, so what does that mean? That so it is, you know, for example, there is a certain amount of there will be a certain amount of Filecoin that are issued each time frame, and then you get it according to you know the proportion of. Uh, of files that you are hosting on a network, or it will be like you know, the more people host files, then it's just like the more uh, gets issued. Or how, how would that work? Yeah, exactly. So, so you can follow a. Um, so, so I tend to to like the the deflationary aspect of Bitcoin because it gives a really strong incentive for people to join the network early and to work with the network early, um, and you can always build 
either other currencies that are kind of companions to it uh, that can give you the, the inflationary, like the, the benefits of an inflationary currency. Um, so uh, though it is not 100% settled, uh, it, is, it looks very much like Filecoin will be, will be ex strictly a deflationary currency as well. Like there will be a certain limit of Filecoin. Uh, but the divisible unit will be really large so that for a long time you can keep subdividing um, and get to a point where where y you want the value to be to be pegged by um, to have a floor of, of, of the value of the network um, but you want to also incentivize people to get into the network early uh, and that's a really powerful uh, game theoretic mechanic uh, because it rewards people at the beginning um, and it makes the the coins that people earn early uh, be worth a lot in the long run if the, if the network works out as a whole. Um, that one of the one of the problems with inflationary currencies is though the, with an inflationary currency you would get like this this really nice um, system which would uh, like o over time you wouldn't have to like like you you could align the value of the currency much closer to what the value of real storage is. Um, but if you do that, you might not generate the, the necessary um, incentive for lots of people to set up um, the network, right? So, so in a sense, when you think about like the worth of Bitcoin today uh, and how much money people were getting in Bitcoin at the very beginning of the Bitcoin network, um, a lot of people got really rich because they worked really hard to push this forward. Uh, and you need something like that to cause the effects that we need to build out this massive storage network. To build this, build this whole thing out, you need a lot of people working really hard to set it up, um, and you want to reward that. You don't want to like just, um, you know, inflate it over time and be like, okay, well, like, thank you, thanks so much, but like, um, better luck next time, right? So, what's the time frame here? It's, it's, it seems like at the moment you're you're prioritizing IPFS, and that's the thing. And, and will file Filecoin come later? Yeah. So, so um, we we decided to be uh, to push out IPFS uh, sooner and to, because we, wa we wanted to have Filecoin out um, sometime this year. When we first started, like this was like a year ago, uh, when we first started both projects, uh, we wanted to have Filecoin out, out sometime this year. Um, but along the way, we just saw so much traction with IPFS and so much, so many people just wanting to use it and so on. Um, and the value of, of having IPFS as, as a transfer for the web was so such a compelling and important thing to have. Um, that uh, we kind of like redoubled our efforts there and said this is kind of like the, the big important thing to get right. Um, because at the end of the day, if you don't build out a distributed network um, that will just create tons of data uh, to be hosted by these services, um, the decentralized and distributed storage won't ever be able to compete at all with centralized systems. Like there, there's just no way. Uh, things like S3 and Google Cloud, uh, Cloud Storage and so on are just orders of magnitude better. Like the uptime is, is way better. You can just pre-encrypt everything and use them as a storage system. And, you know, store to S3 and store to Google, Google Cloud and store to, to uh, Apple and so on. And, you know, get your redundancy there. And maybe a few other providers here and there. Uh, but that will give you a much better system than most decentralized systems. The way you beat that, the way that you, you can try to co create a competitive network that can actually um, rival a system like that um, is that, A, you kind of use those systems at the beginning. You want to create a system at the beginning where it's actually profitable for users to set up nodes 
are on top of S3 or set up nodes on top of um, other systems like that and mine for Filecoin, the same way that people were mining for Bitcoin at the beginning on AWS and so on. Uh, and second, you want to create like an enormous, uh, in, an enormous uh, reward for people building out the network to succeed. Uh, so you want to incentivize these these massive mines, uh, these Bitcoin mines in, in China to also just start stocking up on hard drives uh, and starting mining, mining Filecoin. But they won't do it if it, there's not a huge reward at the end of the uh, at the end of the day, right? And so to cause that enormous um, scale, like when, when you look at the, the computing power of the Bitcoin network, it's just this astounding thing, right? Like you, you it passed uh, several server computers, uh, like I think two years ago. And, um, and like now it's like the most, it's one of the most, uh, it's beyond the most powerful server computer in the network. Uh, it's just like this insane amount of computation power devoted just to hashing. Um, and that's the power of strong monetary incentives. And so you need to create something similar to that to build out a massive storage network. Uh, and in order to, to do that, you need a strong reward. And in order to create the demand for the storage, you need a large consumer system. You need a, a system that is just going to create tons of data. Um, and these are backing up all of what we have, right? Backing up all of the important scientific data sets, backing up uh, all of the media that's out there, like all of the Creative Commons media, taking all of these video sites that have, um, you know, tons and tons and tons of video, uh, and they, you know, it's really expensive for them to host it, to just host it on another, on other systems as well. Um, and so th that's where like the, the dual nature of, of the system comes in, right? Like you have um, IPFS as a way to transport data and to generate this massive amount of demand for, for storage. And on the other side, you have Filecoin, which is, gives you a very strong incentive for miners to build out this really strong storage network, um, coupled with that demand, right? So it's it's, it's storage is a, a two-sided market, and um, the reality is that there exists some set of applications that require this distributed storage like this, kind of applications that are based built on top of Bitcoin or Ethereum and so on. But the storage requirements are min minimal, right? Like you can just host it all on S3. Uh, Google Cloud and Azure, and like that's it. You don't need any more. Um, and so, for to really make these networks actually valuable and give some some real reward to the end user, you have to couple it with an enormous demand. So how how then? I mean, if we sort of extrapolate into the future, and you know, file uh, IPFS is, is successful in some order of magnitude, and we then have. Uh, uh, an economy of file storage uh, that that is established, and you know these miners in China, as you mentioned, start uh, having hard drives, and those operations grow bigger. And don't we just get back into the same system or sort of scenarios we have now, where there are data centers hosting the data? I mean, I guess the advantage, the, the the difference is that it would be distributed, but we're... yeah. So, so I mean, you don't want to host the data necessarily on people like you don't want to host people's uh data on laptops right and you don't want to host the data on on mobile phones right you actually want dedicated machines but the nature of the dedicated machines what you want is a certain kinds of guarantees one is like if you have a marketplace where anybody can plug in a rack of disks and start earning earning money um that lowers the barrier of entry so a lot of systems can come in and play and, and be part of this huge, huge network. Um, and then on the other side is if you allow caches, like Filecoin nodes to be added anywhere in the network, like not just in the backbone, but like really anywhere in people's homes, in like universities, uh, 
in you know large event spaces and so on, then there's an incentive for all those organizations to just run these machines locally, uh, and then the content providers can or or you can run algorithms that figure out what content should be placed where to be served more effectively, right? So so the the CDN to end all CDNs is a CDN that can put content into the user's home, like beat the speed of light, like put the disks and all of the content they want to look at or view or like the majority of the big stuff co-located with them, like exactly in their near proximity, ideally in the same physical network. Um, and the only way you can get to do that is if you incentivize large amounts of users all over cities uh, to just start building out these content caches, both in the, in the, in the user side of the network, meaning like a, on the other side of the ISP, kind of like in the local area networks and so on, and in the backbone, but pretty much everywhere, uh, like not bounded by, by what a certain uh, company and so on might do. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, so what, what you're suggesting is that essentially data storage is no longer only limited to large data centers that have infrastructure that can, um, that can provide redundancy and, and, and sort of near uh, uh, low, low latency uh, access to content through you know, having multiple copies of this content in their serve on, around the world to um, more localized storage where you may have a data center in your you know, sort of local geographic area or uh, your ISP may provide some sort of IPFS node uh, next to your, you know, sitting right with the DESLAM, uh, your ADSL connection or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what you also get out of that is that you... Go against this. So right now, storage is getting cheaper way faster than bandwidth is getting cheaper. Like that's just kind of like the the nature of the curves. Um, and so our storage capacity is increasing faster than the bandwidth capacity. And so our relative perception is that things might seem to be getting slower instead of faster. It's kind of like this weird behavior because our data usage is just increasing to fill our the disks and the capacity of the disks. So you get a situation where you have, um, like, you just create more and more and more media to store in, in uh, you know, whatever disk capacity that you have, but it becomes more difficult to move it around the network. So what's really valuable is bandwidth. Uh, so storage is valuable, but it's not as valuable as being exactly in the right location. Uh, so that's, that's the more interesting part of, a, of the whole network. Uh, but in order to get to, to be able to do that sort of a thing, you have to first build this massive storage layer. Um, you have to level the playing field, like make it really easy for people to be part of the network, make it really easy for people to like join and start um, providing storage and so on. And you have to uh, also make it possible to for the groups to not not just control the network as, as a whole, right? For not one entity to control the whole thing. So you know, if we you know, we can we can sort of look at the future where that's that storage layer would, would be there. And sort of everything would be would be stored uh, on on an IPFS uh, system. Uh, in more near term, what are some of the most exciting use cases that you're looking forward to seeing? So that's that's sort of for for Filecoin, right? So for the most exciting use cases right now for IPFS, it's stuff like um, like just distributed websites, right? So people are already starting to build these. Uh, so yeah, you can take a static website today and add it to IPFS, and it's like way easier, nicer, simpler hosting, and that's really cool. 
But what becomes really interesting is to make websites that are completely decoupled from the from the backbone, meaning um, websites that are that have no origin server, websites that just ride on clients directly and just are perhaps potentially entirely encrypted end to end, right? So the entire payload of the website is this encrypted thing, and you get this encrypted thing, you load it up an application, your browser like decrypts it, loads it, uh, and starts doing some computation or whatever, and takes all the products and encrypts them again end to end uh, and sends them somewhere else. And so like that's that's I think like an extremely exciting part of this because not only do you do you add this like uh, you, you put people's you, you put the power back in people's hands, right? So so we have this problem right now where um, all these these important applications that we use day to day, like what we depend on in our daily lives, uh, from the things that we use to store our files on to the messaging systems that we use to communicate with our family, with our loved ones, with our coworkers, and so on, are all these centralized services that own all of the data, and you don't have any control over that whatsoever, and so you can't. You can't encrypt it end to end because the like if it's a messaging system, like you can't really use it. I think Apple is the only one who's who's encrypting everything end to end, um, and so like that's that's a big win. Uh, another is that you you can get applications to just work entirely offline, so that if your network gets disconnected from the backbone, everything can still work, right? Like it's kind of silly that today, um, if you were sitting next to somebody else and the your connection to the backbone breaks, you can't collaborate on documents, you can't. Uh, work on certain kinds of applications. It's, like, it's really silly, and we we know we have a technology today to just fix this problem. We just haven't, um, and so what we're building makes it a lot easier to do this. Uh, and that's, I think, an extremely set of like really interesting applications that are going to spring up. So Juan, like the, the use cases. So I mean, IPFS, right? The vision here is like super enormous. And uh, it's it's interesting, uh, you know. We we talk about a lot of these applications, and they're they're like really cool and interesting. But like, I'm sure you think a lot about, you know, what's the sort of the end game. So in your you know most optimistic scenarios, when you know like everything goes right and people adopt it in the way you want them to adopt it, what's the internet going to look like 15 years from now or 10 years from now? So in the long run, you have a system where you have a, a, a fabric, of, like the entire fabric of the internet is this like computable system where um, you compute things in the right place based on where the data is located. Like you, you have a network that is just adapting entirely to usage and being extremely efficient at how it uses uh, those resources, both computation and storage, bandwidth and so on. Um, you have a network where people can plug in systems and algorithms into the, into the network um, and can get compensated in microtransactions and stuff. Um, so th this is the kind of stuff that's like super uh, exciting down in the, in, in the long long run. Um, but probably I think most important is you can have these networks that are entirely run by protocols and not run by by ISP. So so we're talking about like taking the ISP and turning it into a protocol. Uh, and so instead of having one organization that says okay we're going to own a network and put it together and run it, you have networks that can emerge and arise as protocols and, and collaborations that come together through rules that everybody plays out. Um, because that's how you can scale out other systems like wireless, right? So we haven't really seen massive usage of, of wireless mesh. Like we've seen some very large deployments, you know, there's some in Germany, there's some in India and so on. Um, but we haven't seen these massive wireless deployments because ISPs don't want to 
break that. Uh, except that if you enabled uh, regular people to build out the network bit by bit by bit, um, that's where the incentives can actually play out in, in your favor to build out this huge network. Uh, and you can do that with protocols. You can't do that with, with like these huge capital investments. It's not, not worth it to a lot of these companies to set up and deploy wireless. Um, but it might be worth it to some specific individuals uh, in like a small scale. And you can get to fill out all these gaps. Um, so, so we're really talking about a, 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 an internet, a, a huge network that is hyper-efficient, um, that is encrypted end-to-end, -end, where the entire applications um, live and operate entirely where they're supposed to be. Uh, you know, based on where the data is, based on, on the properties of the data, who wants to share what with whom, what are the permissions. Um, and where you can have computing systems that are almost kind of like autonomous and evolving on the network. So this, is, this starts to get a kind of like, um, this starts getting into like, like what happens when you, when you start like releasing these, these smart contracts onto the network with like these optimization systems. Um, and it gets potentially like kind of dangerous, right? Like you don't know what some of these smart contracts will do. Like some people will program like some pretty stupid, bad things uh, and you have a smart contract that will, you know, um, make money and continue to make money by and paying other people by doing something evil, right? And people will have, make it, have it hard. It'll be hard for people to stop that. Um, however, on the flip side, you can get these autonomous agents that can... Um, work within the internet to optimize the hell out of the network and to make it much, much better and simpler. Um, and you can get this like comp competition going uh, when where more efficient systems kind of emerge and can very quickly deploy through the entire network and, and gain, gain um, to a certain extent, like gain usage. Uh, so we're talking about like the, the full market of, uh, like turning, turning all of these networks and uses, uses of the network into a hyper-optimized uh, market. Uh, and, on the, uh, and then you can think about like computational systems where um, all of the code that you're running is just addressed in, in the system. So you, you no longer have to think about shipping code from one place to another or you know, uh, libraries and files and so on. You just kind of like write functions and just deploy them into the network. Um, I think Amazon Lambda is probably the closest thing to this. I was actually very surprised when they, when they came out with this. I think like they're, there's some very smart people there that are thinking way ahead of the game usually you don't see this sort of like um, kind of like investment on an on a, on a unproved idea so much, but like they realize that this is kind of what, what it's all going to, where you're going to shed away the notion of a server, you're going to shed away the notion of an OS. When you deploy an application, all you care about is writing a function and deploying it somewhere. And so you, you can think of the end state of all, a lot of the stuff as these agents that have a wallet associated with them and they run some computation and they, they hold some cryptographic keys. And when they run that computation, they might be rewarded monetarily for that computation. It's the same way that, um, that websites sort of work today, but today you have like this large infrastructure running. In the future, you might just program them. It might be an individual that like programs one thing and just deploys it and it just runs entirely in the network. It pays for its, its own storage, it pays for its own computation, it moves itself around and, and earns value that way. Yeah, Juan, this is uh, amazing for sure. And uh, I, we, we're definitely gonna have to have you on again at some point, but like we're running, we're running really yeah, late. Sure. Although we've yeah, sorry about enjoy that. It. No, no, it's not at all. It's been uh, it's been super interesting. Now, before we wrap up, uh, one thing. So the company you run is called Protocol Labs. Uh, can you talk uh, just very briefly about the company and particularly also 
what kind of ways of monetizing or, or sort of business model do you think uh, you will build around that? Yeah. So um, I started this company called Protocol Labs, and I think it's it's uh, important to kind of tell like the story of why um, I decided to go and do this. Um, when I came up with IPFS, um, I had a few options, um, and so like one option was potentially like you know go and and uh, try to develop this in my spare time while I work on something else. Like that that just wasn't going to work. It's just an enormous amount enormous amount of work to put all create all these all these uh, protocols. Another option was to I don't know, like go go into this is fairly academic, uh, so you could conceivably get a PhD and go do this. And like I saw that as a complete dead end in that most PhD work doesn't produce um, usable things in the real world. It produces better papers and better systems uh, and better ideas. Uh, but it, we actually have a surplus of good ideas right now. I think like the network is um, 15, 20 years behind the best ideas. So like when you look at uh, the edge of where academia is, it's just 15, 20 years ahead of what we have deployed in the network. Um, so when that's the reality, what you really need is a system where uh, you can take a lot of those good ideas and develop them and deploy them into the network. Uh, so that happens in a few places in the world. It happens in, in a couple of like really big companies, uh, namely Google, uh, Apple, and Facebook to some extent, Amazon, and a few other places. They develop these better infrastructure systems and push them out into the world many times as part of open source. It also happens with a few, the few academics that are also really good programmers that actually go and like implement and deploy this, the things. And it also happens a lot with open source. So specific people that come together and say, you know what, we really want this thing to exist. We're just going to build it. Uh, but those two latter routes are fraught with problems. They usually don't have enough uh, resources to build out something um, really meaningful and something really big. In fact, we look at something like Bitcoin as this insane achievement of one person who managed to come up with great ideas, uh, you know, building on the work of others uh, over time and managed to... Uh, piece together the right set of, of incentives, uh, constructs a network, manages to implement tons of it, uh, and then ships it to the world, right? And yeah, he had, um, he or she or whoever, might have been multiple people, uh, had help from, other, from others, but um, it's still a tremendous amount of, of work that went into producing uh, Bitcoin. Uh, the same could be said about the amount of work to produce uh, BitTorrent, and the same amount of work to produce something like Git. Although Git had the help of the entire Linux kernel community, um, though it was a lot of Linus and a few people. Uh, there's all these examples of amazing pivotal pieces of software uh, that are wrapped up with a whole bunch of new ideas uh, that change the, the face of the network for forever. Um, and those kinds of developments um, happen pretty rarely because it's very difficult to couple the really good ideas with a really good development team with a really great deployment plan. And all of that has to happen or you don't get uh, the good solution, right? Um, so I, I'm a huge fan of two labs in the past, Bell Labs and Xerox Park. And I think that those two labs produce so much technology that we today take for granted and use every day to day. And they managed to, to um, set these huge bets uh, on the future and managed to create tons of great valuable stuff. And Park created a lot of stuff from scratch. Bell Labs also did too, but a lot of what Bell Labs did, at least the projects that I really care about, um, where I'm referencing is specifically like the, the Unix team uh, within Bell Labs. 
they refined a lot of older ideas and they refined a lot of other kind of like surplus of academic ideas that were around and they refined it into really good uh, development. Uh, so the, the, the development and the deployment part, they got perfectly. And they managed to deploy this amazing thing that just every single system, except I guess Windows machines, run on Unix. Um, and that was achievable because they had like this, this focus on just understanding what was the important thing to do, building it and deploying it. And what I want in the long run is to build a group that can do this for the internet, for the network. So my, my plan and my goal is to build a, what I call an RDND lab. So research development and deployment, um, where we can look at the entire internet stack, figure out what protocols are broken, figure out where we can improve the network and devote the resources to do it. Um, and now the interesting thing is that before 2008, protocols didn't make money, right? Protocols kind of got created by people altruistically or as the result of um, government funding. Actually, most protocols uh, that we use today are the result of massive investment from the US government funding the development of, of the ARPANET and also other European agencies funding the development of the OSI model and so on. Um, so we're riding on all that uh, massive investments, except that today we don't have that same level of, of investment and yet, and so our protocols are kind of lacking. However, Bitcoin came in and Bitcoin changed the entire world because it allows protocols to be coupled with, a, it, with value. So now you can have networks that create protocols that um, have a value influx uh, into the group that is creating and maintaining and improving and helping run the protocol. Uh, and that just changes everything. And so what, what we are doing at Protocol Labs is crafting protocols, uh, some of which will be cryptocurrency incentivized. And when they are cryptocurrency incentivized, some portion of the currency will be allocated for Protocol Labs. And we're not exactly 100% sure of how we're going to do that in the long run because there's a few different models. You can do the sort of like pre-allocation as some other people do. Or what I'm more of a fan is releasing over time. So you have like this notion of like as the, the currency continues to be um, successful, some larger and larger piece gets unlocked for, for the development team. Um, so this can work. Uh, and you know, it's, it's worked for, for Ethereum. Ethereum did, did this very successfully. Um, and it's worked for other groups. And so we, we see that as one potential route. But it's not, all, it's not the only route that we, uh, that we are exploring. There's another side to all of this, which is that when you look at IPFS, it's not a very cryptocurrency-centric thing. It's actually pretty standard in terms of the regular network. So a lot of services can be built around IPFS that uh, can be services that we run and that we run for the network or that we uh, sometimes sell to companies, right? So there's these massive entities on the internet, like the Fortune 500 companies that spend a lot of money adopting new technology. And so we can help them adopt a lot of new technology um, by building services that make it easy for them. Uh, so there's like all these different uh, ways to make money around protocols. Uh, and so we're exploring a lot of them, uh, though the main one for a, for a while will be just Filecoin. Um, I hope that that kind of makes sense, but. No, absolutely. Uh, and I agree with you. I think that's, that's one of the amaz amazing things of Bitcoin, as you mentioned there, that incentivization is just one thing that Satoshi got brilliantly right. Uh, and, and, and the ability, actually, yeah, to have open source protocols that have financial value tied to it. So that makes perfect sense. So yeah, Juan, uh, thanks so much for coming on. It was a, it was a great pleasure having you. It was super interesting. Yeah, thank you so much, by the way. This was a fantastic interview. Uh, Great fun chatting and happy to come back whenever.
Well, we'll gladly have you on at some point and go for another an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, and I, actually, I, ironically, this is our uh, 100th episode, and we were we were like, so it's like, oh, we didn't get around to sort of like doing something special, but I, I think this was actually quite hey, special. Hey, so. I, look what I got. Uh. <laughs> oh, you, you, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I didn't, but Sebastian well, Brian didn't did. get a bottle of champagne, but I have a yeah. bottle of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> I have one in a wine cooler, so. <laughs> uh, yeah so thanks so much and of course thanks to our listener lots of, I know lots of you have been listening for a long time um, and yeah our episode 100 it's exciting so yeah, I just want to say how, how excited I am about this I mean uh, I, I just before the show uh, I was uh, I don't know you said something you mentioned something you said oh you got this process all down and I said oh you know 100 episodes I was like it's 100 episodes already seems like yeah. we started just yesterday I know so, um, yeah, so that's it. But yeah, we'll, we'll be back for the next 100 episodes starting next Monday, which we've with the 101st. Now, uh, the other thing we've been doing for a while and, and we keep doing that, this is this like bribery t-shirt contest, which basically means you leave an iTunes review and, and um, we send you a t-shirt. Uh, and, you know, you can say, of course, wonderful things or, or uh, that this was terrible and you hate the internet now that you've heard all these things. Um, and yeah, if you do that, just send us an email at show at epicenterbitcoin.com. And yeah, we'll put out episodes every Monday. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or of course, watch the YouTube, uh, the videos on YouTube. And that's at youtube.com slash epicenterbtc. And yeah, that's it. So thanks so much. Yeah.